Hey friends, I'm Sharon Betters and I am the host of this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. We are so grateful that you have joined us today and we hope that as you listen, as you are encouraged and blessed and maybe better equipped to walk by faith or to help a friend, that you will share this conversation with others, that you will leave a review, that you will let others know that you like it. That's the best way for us to get the word out about our resources. And we hope that you will help us do that. Mark Inc's ministry is rooted in the vision of offering help and hope, especially to hurting people. And one of the best ways that we were helped after the death of our 16 year old son, Mark, and his friend Kelly was by people who had suffered the loss of a child who were ahead of us in grief's journey, and they willingly stepped back into their own sorrow to help us navigate the foreign land of grief and to encourage us that one day we would experience joy again. And we want to be those people to others. And we are so grateful for the many, many people who are willingly giving their stories, sharing their redemption stories on the Help and Hope podcast with that same goal of calling back to someone who is hurting that there is hope and there is comfort and there is joy again. And one of the ways that they offer that hope is by sharing practical ways of walking by faith in broken places. And that's one reason why I really appreciate the conversation that I had today with Rachel Lewis. Uh, Rachel is the author of the book, Unexpecting Real Talk on Pregnancy Laws. And so we're gonna be talking about pregnancy and infant loss, which are common, and yet our society shrouds them in secrecy and sometimes shame. Rachel says that our culture stars grieving women uh, and, the, and the grieving dads of much needed support. Women can leave the hospital feeling like strangers in their own bodies, facing postpartum life without a baby in their arms. And often people who want to help say things that are not very helpful. And so in this conversation, you're going to hear Rachel validate the grief of bereaved parents. And she offers the hard fought hope that she discovered during her journey. And you might say, well, what makes her a credible witness of this hope? Rachel has lost five children through various means of loss, but I think that makes her a credible witness. She offers very practical ideas on how to navigate the foreign land of grief, and she validates the unique, deep grief that child loss brings, not just to the mom, but also to the dad, and, and no matter where in the birthing process, the child was lost. So I know that this conversation is going to give you insight into the grief that uh, moms experience, whether they lose their child through miscarriage or stillbirth, or perhaps their baby dies in the womb. You're going to have a much better idea of what that looks like and feels like and very practical ways. Those of you who have experienced this on walking this pathway. So I'm very grateful for Rachel Lewis. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be on. We are going to be talking about such an important topic. There are so many people who have experienced loss through miscarriage or a baby who has died in the womb. I think about my own niece who uh, experienced this uh, terrible loss when her baby was five months old in the womb and the heartbreak and the heartache and so many who suffer alone and isolation, they really need the kind of message that you offer. And I'm grateful that you have been so proactive about offering your story as a means for giving hope to others. So as we jump into our conversation, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your life right now, but then share with us your story and why you thought it was important to write this book. Well, a little bit about my life right now. I live close to Seattle, Washington. And it's as gloomy as all the movies portray it to be right now. <laughs> I have three children currently at home, a middle schooler, an elementary schooler, and a, almost in kindergartner. And our sort of journey to family has 
been a little complicated as, uh, as I like to say. So the Cliff's Notes version is that I had a unexpected and sort of traumatic pregnancy early on in our marriage. It did result in a live baby, but it left me with um, PTSD and some postpartum depression and then just, you know, trauma. And that sort of set the stage for the way that kind of our family was built. We weren't sure if we wanted to try again. My husband really didn't want to be in a position where he might have to choose between my life and a baby's life. And so he was, we we just weren't sure if we were going to try again, but I knew that I always had wanted to adopt and he was on board with that as well. And so we went ahead and started the process to be a foster parents who were available for adoption should a child need to be adopted. And so we began that process. And right after getting licensed, I found out I was unexpectedly pregnant again. And uh, this time I was prepared at least in the sense that I knew that I loved motherhood. And I I felt like this was sort of a chance I didn't think I would have because we had given up on the idea of biological children. And so I thought, okay, here's my second chance to do it right (laughs) and to uh, hopefully have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy birth and to be excited during the pregnancy. And so I just emotionally jumped all in with both feet. Sadly, at about seven and a half weeks, my uh, fallopian tube tore and we realized that I had an ectopic pregnancy and I uh, was rushed off to emergency surgery. My uh, OB was able to save my life. She was able to save my fertility, but of course she was not able to save my baby who we named Olivia. And at that point I was plunged into a very deep, deep grief, one that I did not understand and one I felt very unprepared for. I had always heard about miscarriages. Um, my mom had had three after me and before my brother. And so it, it wasn't a foreign concept, but actually walking through it myself, I felt like I was just in this foreign land and a foreign body and I didn't recognize anything. And it affected me spiritually and emotionally and obviously physically. Um, it, it affected my relationships. And, and that was the first of, of five consecutive losses. Um, as we continue to try to have uh, children, we just had recurrent, unexplained miscarriages uh, anywhere between five to eight weeks. And then we, um, we did uh, adopt sort of in the middle of all of that, adopted our middle daughter. And then we fostered a son. We had him for, let's see, for a year, or almost two years. And then, no, a year and a half. Sorry. We've had him twice now. We, we returned him home which was a very different, but also very deep grief. And I got pregnant again. I had my rainbow baby, as we tend to call babies who were born after loss. And then he came back into the system and we fostered him again for another two years. And then we said goodbye to him uh, two years ago now. So that was probably a lot. (laughs) Um, It's just... It's not, it was not a very straight journey. So one of the hard questions for me is anyone who asked me how many children I have, because that's, that's a hard, that's a hard question to answer, but, but currently three children at home, a foster son in my heart and five babies up in heaven, um, is what our family looks like today. Well, uh, listeners, you cannot see this beautiful young woman, but she looks like she's in her twenties. So that's a lot of living, (laughs) but it's also, it's very, very sad too. the losses that you've experienced. And, um, I'm sure that many who are listening can relate to at least one of those losses that, uh, I mean, even as you're mentioning foster care and having a a son, as you say, in your heart and how complicated all of that has to be. But what I'm grateful for, uh, Rachel, is that you are willing to share some of the treasures along the way that you have experienced Mm -hmm. and give you joy, although it has been hard fought. In your book, uh, which I I highly recommend uh, called Unexpecting, you write, uh, right at the very beginning, you write, uh, when I first lost Olivia, and you just mentioned Olivia, I did not recognize myself. My actions became mechanical. My eyes were either blank, like I wasn't registering anything that was going on around me or full of tears. And the ache in my heart was constant. When you first suffer loss, your heart may feel completely consumed. And you're not always sad. Sometimes you're angry or afraid. Sometimes you feel everything at once and sometimes nothing at all. 
Others around you may not understand how you feel or why you are coping the way you are. Please hear me on this. Everything you feel is valid. Your feelings are appropriate no matter what gestation you were or how you delivered your child or how many living children you have or do not have or how long it took you to get pregnant. What you are feeling right now needs to be felt and no one has the right to tell you otherwise. And this is a strong message throughout your story and throughout your book. And what really uh, caught my attention was that you are you say that that we often think that the measure of a parent's grief is directly related to how far along they were in the pregnancy. But even in this paragraph and throughout the book, you say there is more to the equation than we often consider. And I think it's important for you to share with us what you mean. What do you believe plays into how a person experiences the grief of pregnancy loss? Well, like you said, I think we assume that love grows by weeks and attachment grows by weeks. And just as a society, we've historically looked at first trimester losses differently than second or third, and sometimes stillbirth even differently than, uh, than infant death. And so, um, oh, I think we, we, like it to be a cut and dry because it gives us some context and some parameters on how we should sort of maybe respond to someone who's had a loss. And so I think it gives us some, some guidelines or why we, why we like to think it operates this way is because it gives us a guideline on how to measure our own response. But scientists tried to, they tried to like sort of prove that the amount that a person grieved and the amount that they were affected was directly proportional to the amount of weeks that, that their pregnancy had progressed. And they were unable to find a direct correlation between the two. And I think that's really important for all of us to understand because it is not this black and white, cut and dry, here's how I should respond. It is very much dependent on the individual. For instance, how much do they want to be pregnant? How attached were they? Was this their first and only pregnancy? Did this happen after years and years of trying? Did they have to do infertility either before or after? Was there trauma involved? For instance, the hardest, I would say, emotional loss for me was my first with Olivia, in part because I was also plunged into a life-threatening you know, condition suddenly. And there was trauma involved in that, not only to my body that took over a year to heal, but also just to my psyche and for my husband as well. So relationally. And so there's so many other complex pieces that kind of go into this. It's like a very unique individualized puzzle where there's all these pieces. And so the ending picture looks so very different, just depending on the person, as well as how do they tend to cope loss? Like what kind of resources do they have? Was there adequate social support that was given? For some people, it plunges them into a lot of questioning spiritually. And for some people, they feel a very strong comfort uh, spiritually through the process. So really what we need to do as supporters when we are looking at other people who've experienced loss is to, to follow their lead, to continue to be a safe and open space, a non-judgmental space. And to say, I believe you. If you tell me that you are absolutely devastated, I believe you. I will support you through that. If you tell me that you're doing okay, I will believe you. You know, so so just remaining open, non-judgmental, and holding space for whatever this experience has meant to them, and then to be able to reflect that back to them, um, to show them that they're being heard and they're being seen. Can you talk a little bit more about that holding space? You talk a lot about that in your book. What do you mean when you say that? And how can we, as you just said, hold a space for that broken person? Nature gives us sort of an example of, of holding space. And it's this concept that I really resonate with. I know some, some other uh, people have as well. The example that we're given in nature is elephants, of all things. When a mother elephant is either in a compromised positions. So whether they, they are injured or if they're giving birth and it's right after or during labor, all of the other elephants in the herd, what they do is they surround that laboring mother and they've got their ears full out, their shoulder to shoulder in a very protective stance against predators so that other animals cannot take advantage of this elephant in a compromised position, in a weakened position. And 
that's how I imagine holding space to work when someone is grieving. And obviously in this, in this book and in my message of grieving the loss specifically of a baby is that they are in a very vulnerable position and we can do the best that we can to give them the space that they need to take care of themselves and to provide um, some protection, support, to know that we have their backs and to allow them the space that they need to experience it however they need to experience it. So rather than dictating to them, like, this is how you need to grieve. This is what you need to do next. Saying, if you are open and if you would like some suggestions, here are some options for you. What feels right to you right now at this moment? How can I best support your decisions? And so that's to me is, is what holding space is. It's just this non-judgmental, protective, yet allowing that person room to experience it how they need to. I like that visual that of the elephants that is very precious. I've read books about elephants and they're, they're, they, as a rabbit trail, they, they are amazing. Um, and in almost their humanity in their relationships and community and all of that. So we can definitely learn there, but I also like that visual picture of space too. When we lost our son, Mark, that was critical. I would talk to other bereaved parents and I wanted them to tell me this is what it's going to look like. This is how long you're going to feel this way. This is when you're going to have that feeling. And none of them would do it. They they would not Mm -hmm. be specific. They might share their story, but they all encouraged me that this is unique. It's unique, just as you described earlier to the relationship to your child, the age of your child, the circumstances, all of it, all of it goes Mm -hmm. in. And I think when we don't recognize that we're really diminishing the value of the the grief that the person is experiencing and the relationship that they had with that person. So what are some of the things that people can say that would diminish that space that, that are hurtful rather than helpful? Some hurtful comments are typically called their platitudes that easy answers to very complicated uh, equations. The key about platitudes is that they are, so as supporters, we believe we are offering comfort sometimes when when we give a platitude. And the reason for that is we look at someone's grief and someone's loss as a problem. And we believe that if we could solve the problem, we could give them comfort and make it better and make it hurt not so much. And platitudes give this appearance, this visage of being able to solve a problem. But what they actually do is they comfort us, the supporters, and they burden the bereaved. So the reason we kind of like them is they kind of give us a bonus as a supporter. So for instance, if let's say someone's uh, child died and, and, and I, as a supporter, were to go up to them and say, everything happens for a reason. Sort of the after, like the unsaid second part of that is, therefore, you don't have to hurt as bad if there's a reason. Therefore, I don't have to hurt as bad for you. Problem fixed. It kind of comforts us as the supporter to say like, okay, well, if the universe is not as random and as scary as it appears in this moment, because if you lost your child, that means I could lose my child. If there's a reason you lost your child, surely there is no reason why I would ever have to lose my child. So that makes the universe a little bit less scary for me. And it causes me to feel better about my own circumstance. And so obviously, um, that's not what support is meant to do. It's not meant to comfort those of us who are supporting someone else. So anything that appears to give an easy answer to a complicated equation like grief and loss. It could be as simple as everything happens for a reason. There must have been something wrong with your baby. That's a really common one. This is just nature's way. Anything that begins with at least that kind of says to the griever, look, it's not as bad as you're making it. Look on the bright side. But there is no bright side to loss and death and grief, right? Can good things come out of it? Yes. But is the loss itself good? No. At least they're in a better place. I don't know any mother who would rather have her child in heaven than in her arms. Sure, yes, heaven after 99 plus years of good living on earth. But given the choice, would I would I rather have them, you know, healthy and whole here on earth first for a good long time? Yes, of course. We're we're designed to want that. 
you could always try again. I know exactly how you feel. No, you don't. Even if you go through a loss, it's like extremely similar. You really don't know how someone else feels. Sometimes they don't even know how they feel. Sometimes it can take them a long time to figure out how they feel. So don't, don't say, I know how you could feel. You could say, I've walked through something similar. And if you would ever like to share with me how you're feeling, I'm sure that, you know, there's some emotions that I could relate with and I would be happy to talk with you and listen. And if you ever want me to share my experiences with you, I'm an open book and I would be happy to do that if you would like. So that's more of a gentle way of saying, I'm here to support you and I can sort of relate without saying, listen, I know how you feel. You don't, but I do. (laughs) You are so strong. I couldn't do it. That implies that that person somehow is feeling strong or is strong. And none of us are superhuman. None of us are really designed to lose a child and to lose a pregnancy. And and we don't have these superhuman special powers. And honestly, most of the time we feel like we can't do it either. We just take that next breath because we have no choice. So those are just some of the things that people say that are not supportive. And it is really hard. I think it's hard for the people who are trying to figure out what to say too. I remember in our own experiences, I mean, the things you're saying I've heard in the loss of our own child. And of course they they didn't help me. And I was sharing with a friend and she said, try to remember their intent. Their intent Mm -hmm. is to try to help you. (laughs) But in that moment of my grief, it was hard to feel any compassion (laughs) toward anyone who had said something like that. um, And I think sometimes it's because it's about us, um, the one, not about the hurting person, but as you said, if we can diminish it somehow or make it explain it somehow, then we are protected from Mm -hmm. this happening to us as well. So it's a lot for us to be careful about, Um, you know, consider carefully. Uh, I remember uh, Hebrews in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, the passage says, consider carefully how to encourage one another. Mm -hmm. And this was with hurting people. And Mm -hmm. so to me, that was everyone is unique and we need to look at each person as an individual. And that was very good. uh, What you're sharing, I think is really, really helpful. One of the things that I think is a, a misnomer is that if your baby dies, then you're not a mother or a father anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're saying that's not true. You're saying mm-hmm. that that does not change that you are a parent. So how can that bereaved parent continue? Is there a way to parent a child that even they've never even held in their arms? Yes. So there is a new, new-ish grief theory that is called continuing bonds. And this sort of replaces grief theories that have been promoted over the years. And as we're, you know, people have discovered, you know, there's been more scientific studies about grief and about loss. Um, you know, used to be, they, people used to believe uh, that you sort of had to move on this concept of you heal by moving beyond the loss. What they found is that's actually not how humans heal. One of the models of of sort of integrating grief and and loss into our lives is to continue the bond that we have with the person that we are grieving. And when a person dies, their role in our life hasn't died. So your son will always be your son. He will never not be your son. And when someone is had is pregnant, they will always have had that pregnancy. They will have always been that baby's mother. That role does not change. It doesn't get lost. It doesn't get diminished. Does it look different? Yes. You might be picking out burial clothes instead of picking out a brand new wardrobe for your baby. It might look like, you know, you're putting a name on a headstone instead of choosing a name that you hope will live, you know, forever with this, with a child or giving them like, we might just choose the, the name differently. I mean, there's, it's going to look not the same, but that doesn't mean it's not as important or as meaningful or as healing for you. And so you can really choose how you want to parent. Like if this feels right to you and it doesn't feel right to everybody, but if it feels right to you, you can, um, say, okay, here are some ways I can maybe parent my child privately or intimately. Um, That could be naming your baby. That could be 
lighting a candle. It could be remembering certain anniversary days. It could mean putting up a space in your home dedicated to your baby's things. It could look a little bit more like grieving in community. So it could be inviting people to participate with you, maybe in a memorial walk or inviting them to to the graveside to like have cupcakes for their birthday. It could look so, so very different. And, And what's really interesting is in our Brave Mamas group, we have quite a few bereaved mothers. And it's always so interesting to see how they choose to incorporate parenting their child, whether that's getting a tattoo with their name or their handprint or or having a private place or just even taking a moment within themselves to remember or to journal. It's just allowing that bond that we have already started, that attachment we have already began with our child to continue. And to know that that is healthy, that is safe, that is one of the ways as we work through grief, it doesn't like put make grief go away and it doesn't just move us past the loss, but it allows us to integrate the loss, um, integrate that person who is so important to us into our lives um, for the long haul. I, I, I love all those ideas. They're, they're very, very sweet. And I love also the um, individual responses that we have the freedom, which, as I said earlier, you encourage bereaved parents to not, not to identify certain things as right and certain things as wrong, mm-hmm. that what it's wherever they are at that point. One of the things that I've become very aware of is that dads often are overlooked in this mm-hmm. grieving process. Why do you think that is? And are there ways that we could acknowledge their grief or are there ways that they need to acknowledge their own grief? Well, I think part of the reason that we sort of look over a man's loss is I think just culturally in Western culture, we don't make a lot of space for men to embrace the kind of emotions that come with grief. We often like sort of, I don't want to say idolize, but we sort of put on a pedestal, this idea of like a man's man, somebody who can be strong, who can sort of support, support the family, keep it moving forward. And we look at pregnancy specifically as a woman's issue. And we tend to think, okay, this happened to a woman's body. And therefore, you know, the the man was sort of waiting to become a father, but the mother was already a mother. Right. Um, And, and that's just, that's, that's not, not true and not how, not how men tend to grieve. And actually it creates this sort of challenge for men because they have these concepts, these sort of uh, ideas and values that we hold them to, like keeping a stiff upper lip. So, so not, not allowing themselves to be expressive about how they truly feel inside. We, we want them to always protect and, and pregnancy loss specifically is a kind of loss where a man feels incapacitated and, and powerless to help protect. I mean, they, they cannot protect the, the unborn child. They cannot protect their significant other from this loss and from this grief. And so it really sort of undercuts this value that they, that they're often held to, that it was their job to protect their family. And it's also really interesting because men and women can sort of fall differently on a spectrum. There's sort of different ways to grieve. There's this intuitive grief, which is more how we as a society look at grief. It's more how do I feel about my loss and sort of exploring those feelings and talking about those feelings and, and what do I, and what do I like wanting to sort of reach out and connect with other people around that loss. So that would look more like uh, support groups, you know, sitting around talking about our feelings, talking about our experiences. So this is typically in Western society, how we view grief and how we think it's appropriate to work through grief. But there's also on the other side of the spectrum, there is instrumental grief and men tend, not all, but, but some, all of us are always like, we're somewhere on this spectrum, Uh, but they tend to be more toward the instrumental side, which is instead of what do I feel about my loss? It's what do I think about my loss? And it's a, it can be very like mental, like a process instead of a deep emotional process. And it also can be like, instead of 
how do I reach out and connect with other people? It could be, what do I do with this loss? At the beginning of it, my chapter on men, I talk about a man who had had, um, I believe it was a stillbirth. Uh, his, his significant other had a stillbirth and he was deeply grieving his baby and he didn't know what to do. He had all these feelings and didn't know how to move those feelings through his body. You know, but sitting around talking did not feel like the right way to do it. And he just went out to his garage and he was just sawing and there was no purpose. It didn't accomplish anything. There was no project, but he worked those feelings out through his, you know, through his muscles and, and like he converted his tears into sweat. And so it's this idea of like, he was processing and he was thinking and he was, he was grieving. But to maybe his wife or a significant other may have gone out there and perhaps she's like, what are you doing? The last thing we need is another project in the house, right? Why would you choose to do this? Why won't you go to the support group with me? I mean, do you even care? Are you even grieving? So we can look at instrumental grief and discount it because we're not as familiar with it. We're not as familiar with the idea of it and that it's actually just as valid of a way to to heal and work through our grief and integrate our grief and loss as this intuitive, this this feelings-based and communication-based style. When we lost our son, Mark, a friend, their child had died the year before, their teenage son. And he wrote out rules for grieving and put them on a refrigerator. And the first one was uh, allow your, your spouse to grieve their way. You're all, mm-hmm. you're going to grieve differently. Don't get mad at them. Don't judge them. Let them grieve differently because he and his wife had grieved so differently uh, and it had caused tension in their mm-hmm. home. And he wanted to protect us from that. That was so helpful to me mm-hmm. uh, personally to, to remember that about my husband. Um, I know that our kids were older and our son was 16. So it it is a different type of loss, but grieving as a family can be so difficult, especially as we just said, everybody has a different way of grieving, but children, if you have young children and they were very excited about their new sibling, and now there is going to be no sibling, Mm -hmm. um, how do you help those children? What, what suggestions would you have for helping children understand what's going on? Well, I think the first thing for parents as well as like support circles to recognize is that there is no age that is too young to grieve the loss of a sibling. And, you know, some, some people may say like, well, even a newborn, let's say, let's say uh, someone loses one of their twins. And so they have a newborn and they've also, they're also grieving the loss of a sibling. Um, Some people may believe that that newborn is incapable of understanding or grieving or feeling any differently than they would had their sibling lived. But babies are so much more perceptive than we give them credit for. And they can actually even taste a difference in a mother's breast milk from this, from the stress hormones that can happen from grief. And so, so they're still getting a hormonal response as the family is grieving. And they can also sense, sense the, the, the feelings of loss in the family, even as a newborn. So, so studies have shown like that there is no one too young to be affected. And so recognize that every child that's in your home, as well as subsequent children, children who may be coming in after are also going to potentially be grieving this loss as well. And, you know, it's, it doesn't always look like I said at the beginning, it doesn't always look like sadness. Sometimes it can look like curiosity. A lot of times kids, their feelings come out in play. That's why there's play therapists is because that allows a child to sort of externalize what's happening inside their body. And Sometimes it, like as an adult, the way we do this is we may write, right? So if I can just get all my feelings out on a blog post or journal, I can look at that. It's external from me. And now I can start processing it because I can, I can have it out, outside of me. And so for children, they do this through play. And so if you start noticing your child has darker themes to their play, that's not something to be afraid of. It, it can be something to say, let's bring a play therapist on board. That could be a really good signal to do that. 
but you don't have to hinder their play. Encourage them to continue playing. It's so necessary for kids. Continue providing structure. Um, In order for a child to feel safe, and grieving has to be done within safety. We can't start addressing our trauma unless our bodies feel safe. So if we're going to go back to the elephant, there's that literal structure, right, around holding that space. There's that barrier to make that mother feel safe. And so children need that structure as much as we can give them, that they understand what to expect from the day, what's coming. Because, you know, having an unexpected loss throws a house in disarray, right? All of a sudden, all your plans go out the window and you suddenly have to start planning a service or go to the hospital. Like everything changes. So within like what is within your control, provide a sense of security and structure for the child to know what to expect. Some other ways to support them, call grief what it is. We don't want children to be afraid of going to sleep at night because someone said that the baby was sleeping or born sleeping because sleep is not death. And so we need to call death what it is. Death is when the body is no longer breathing. They can no longer feel. They can no longer, they're not in pain. They're not hurting. They're not, you know, they're, and they're not coming back to life. And so this is, this is their body and this is what death is. And of course you can bring in some spiritual comfort, but just be careful with the words that you use around that. Because again, you don't want to give your child the idea that if, if they go to heaven, that they can just come back. So there's some, like, you just have to realize that children are very concrete thinkers. So if you need to get your own therapist or work with a therapist to have these discussions with children in a way that will be helpful for them um, to process. Kind of meet them where they are. Some children really need to be able to continue that bond with their sibling. Maybe they need to do things like go to the service or hold their sibling. So allow them to take some ownership as is age appropriate for their own grief process and sort of follow their lead. You can even give them a code word. So if, if they're having a hard time, maybe they're acting out, maybe they're, you know, if they're old enough, maybe to say, I'm, I'm having an Olivia day. Uh, so, so that's their way of saying, Hey mom, like, I know I'm not with it. I'm not holding it together, but I just need you to know, like, I'm at, I'm really struggling with this today. And that can give you an idea of like, okay, I'm going to give this child some space or whatever it is that they need to support them in this. And same for you. If you are really impatient uh, and frustrated that day, you could say to your child, you know what? This is not your fault. I'm, I'm sorry that this is affecting you. I'm having a really hard Olivia day and I'm letting my feelings out, but that's not helpful for you. And I'm really sorry for that. So you can, you can kind of explain it that way as well. Allow your kids to feel their feelings, give them a support structure, give them a support circle, whether that's a spiritual support circle, professional, a social, allowing play dates, inviting friends and family to take them out to like, let them play, let them have fun, let them for sort of let them be kids for a while and, and have a break from this, from this loss and allow them to have some control because One of the ways that trauma is sort of further traumatic is when we lose the ability to have control over what comes next or control over our bodies or circumstances. And so however is possible, whether that's even as simple as saying, do you want apples or carrots for your snack today? I mean, that's a very preschool way to give a child a little bit more sense of control over their own environment and what's happening. Um, And so wherever you can do that, and as you are able, go ahead and do that Um, and allow them to express some concern for you and allow yourself to express feelings to them, not in order for them to fix you um, or to burden them, but when you can grieve yourself and you can acknowledge what you're feeling, and then you can show how you're processing that feeling and that you're pulling yourself back and you're re-regulating. So you've 
shown them, this is what I look like dysregulated. Now I'm going to re-regulate myself. You've just shown them feelings are not scary. Feelings are acceptable. Feelings don't last forever. I can lose control a little bit and I can get it back. So you're really giving them tools on how they themselves can learn to regulate. You're modeling that for them. So don't feel like you need to put on a stiff upper lip and not let your child see what's happening with you. Realize you're modeling grief for them. And that can be a really beneficial tool for them for the long run. I like that. I think that's very, uh, very good counsel. Uh, Rachel, as we're wrapping up our conversation, one of the things that you share is that your faith took a real hard hit with all of these losses, which I can imagine, I, I can definitely understand that. What did you learn about struggles with faith, how to face them, how to process them? What, what counsel would you give to someone who says, you know, before this happened, I, I, I had no questions about my faith in the Lord, but now everything feels like it's up in the air. Um, yes, definitely. My life sort of up until, up until the point of um, a living, even with my traumatic first pregnancy, even then that hadn't plunged me into sort of the depth of questioning and doubt that I experienced after our loss of Olivia. But, but up until Olivia, I feel like I sort of had a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of relationship with God. And, and that felt comfortable. That felt safe. That felt predictable. I felt like I had to my knowledge, done most of the right things and had been compliant with the way that I was taught to be a good Christian. So in, you know, in a uh, quotation marks, good Christian, but all of a sudden with Olivia, I was like, wait a minute, you know, I, I had prayed so hard for my first pregnancy and, and she lived. And so now then I, when things started to look like they were questionable with, with Olivia and I prayed so hard and she didn't live what happened? What changed? Like all of a sudden that equation of like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours was just an upheaval. And I realized that the foundation of my faith was a lot rockier than I expected. And, and I, I guess when you're in a place where your existence is just like, it's, there's just all these hard questions that are unanswerable. Like, why did this happen? And why does it keep happening to me? And why can't I just have a baby? Like those are, those are hard questions and, and it just extended. And I realized like, okay, I actually have a lot of hard questions about my faith. Like what is the role of, of Helen? And why is it that, you know, this is how um, God has expressed himself in the Bible. I mean, there's just, it just felt like it would never end <laughs> the questions. And I had associated up until that point, I had associated doubt with a loss of faith. I had believed that if I, if I doubted God, that somehow I was betraying him. What I've come to understand since is that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Sight is the opposite of faith. And, you know, even, even in the book of Job, we, we often hold up Job to this ideal standard of the ultimate perfect griever. And because what he did if you don't know the book of Job, it's about a righteous man that God allows to go through some really horrific things that affects him in every area, financially, um, traumatic deaths of his family, his loss of status, his loss of standing, his loss of health. And so just his entire entire uh, life sort of implodes. And, you know, in the first two chapters of Job, he responds in such a way to say, you know, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we love this quote so much. We're practically crocheting it on pillows, right? To keep around our house, because we think this is the way that we should respond. But in the third chapter and, and sort of through this whole middle section of the book of Job, um, there's more than 60 chapters of Job and this middle section, he's wrestling. He's actually asking all the hard questions. His friends are giving platitudes. They're giving answers. They are the ones that are saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. God is perfect. He does no wrong. You have obviously, you are obviously wrong, but God is not. At the end of that period of, of wrestling, God sort of speaks to both parties. He speaks to Job and he speaks to his friends and to Job. While he is not particularly 
comforting as we would imagine him to be in that moment, um, or maybe think that he should be, what, what he is, is he allows Job to see a broader picture of who God is. He reveals more of, of himself to Job. And at the end of that, that season of, of him revealing himself, Job says, um, you know, I, 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 I sort of, I've known of you before, but now I know you now I have this relationship. And so even though Job didn't get all of the answers to his questions, that was enough for him. And to Job's friends, the, you know, God's response was more like you were so full of certainty and so full of answers to the questions that you didn't take the time to wrestle. You didn't take, and, and he, they did not get this, you know, he did not reveal more of himself to, to his friends. And so it's just really interesting how at, at the end of it, really, like, you know, we kind of get the idea that, that Job had done the right thing, but not because, not because he immediately responded in faith and not because he was perfect and not because he didn't charge God with wrongdoing. Cause he did ultimately in this questioning, he charged God with wrongdoing, but because he was open and he was honest and he was real. And if we're, if we actually believe that God knows everything about us, then he already knows all these questions that we have. None of this is new to him. So what actually speaks to a greater faith for us to deny that we're having doubts and feelings and we feel betrayed and we feel hurt? No, that doesn't, that isn't you know, God doesn't look at that and be like, you're being truthful and honest because we're not, not with ourselves and not with God. Um, but if we're open and saying, okay, actually I have all these questions, that is a greater show of faith in the relationship because you're saying, you know what, I don't have all the answers and I don't know how to make sense of this. And I feel hurt and I feel betrayed, but obviously I believe our relationship is strong enough that I'm choosing to go to you with it. So for me, you know, I, I am not at a place where I would say I'm on the other side, you know, I'm still right, maybe in the middle of the book of Job, as far as deconstructing and figuring out like all of these questions and then being honest and open and saying like, you know, there's a lack of certainty in these specific areas that I never experienced before. And it's scary and it's hard, but I'm going to just trust and just choose to sit with this and to be okay with this. And for me, that ended up being maybe a, a stronger faith, ultimately, than one that was, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Well, absolutely. We're on the same page in my own grief journey. That's what I, I have concluded and learned, and I believe it's scriptural, that lamenting is biblical. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you read the book of Psalms, you know it. Uh, l- lamenting is biblical. And when, with lamenting, with biblical lament, you're running toward God. You're running toward mm-hmm. the Lord. Mm-hmm. And there is strength there. And he's, and friends, he's not afraid of our questions. He invites our questions. You know, he's, he's not saying, oh, I don't know how I'm going to answer that one. He doesn't push us away. We like to say he holds us tightly in his grip while we're beating on his chest and he welcomes us. I feel as though he says, give it to me. I, I can mm-hmm. handle it. I'm not, I'm not afraid. Mm-hmm. I, I'm holding on to you. There are a lot of things that I'm never going to understand. I and mean, of course, I'm, I'm the mother who would rather have her, hus- her son right here. There's no answer. Somebody said, you know, if only God would tell you why Mark isn't here. And I said, it wouldn't matter to me. I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't care about that. I want my son back. That's what mm-hmm. I want. But there comes that point of surrendering to God's goodness and his uh, love. And, and, and friends, we think about he paid the ultimate price. He sent his son Jesus for us. And so we, that, that can bring incredible comfort. But even though we still sit, as Rachel has said, and we're still processing, there are some, um, some wounds that only heaven can heal where we, he keeps all of his promises, but some of them he's going to keep in heaven where there will be no tears uh, for us that, that know Jesus. So Rachel, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank mm-hmm. you for sharing your heart and your passion. You've thought through a lot of these things in a very specific way that are so practical. And uh, friends, I hope that you want more. I hope this conversation is like salty peanuts where you're going to 
want to hear more from Rachel, and you can do that by getting her book, Unexpecting. We're going to have a link in the show notes. We'll have a link there for how you can connect with Rachel. The ministry, is it called Brave Mamas? Brave Mamas. I also have a resource um, on unexpectingbook.com. I'm imagining there's many listeners today who are listening in who have not personally experienced a loss, but they know someone who has, and they're hoping to learn something about loss and in hopes of helping them. And so I created a specific resource for those of you who consider yourself supporters and it's called um, how to support a loved one through baby loss. And that's a free bonus chapter. That's an instant download. So you could have that right now. If you just go to unexpectingbook.com, right on the homepage, scroll down till you see the bonus chapter. If you put in your email, it will email directly to you. That's fantastic. Thank you. I was not aware of that. So thank you so much again, Rachel, for joining us. I'm Sharon Betters, and my guest today on the Help and Hope podcast has been Rachel, the author of Unexpecting, and um, we will have all of her connections on our website at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. And I just want to encourage you, if you're really struggling in ways that you feel as though I just, I can't get out of this dark, dark hole. The loss is too great. I, I, I resonate with that. I know Rachel would resonate with that as well. We have a ministry called Anchored Hope Biblical Online Counseling, and it is a service for people who just need a little bit more than maybe a friend has tried to help, and it just hasn't been enough. And I would recommend, I would urge you to go to markake.org and click the link for Anchored Hope and check out our counselors. They are all trained. They're biblical counselors. And they are eager to offer help and hope to you in uh, your specific journey. So don't go it alone. If if you are at that point where you feel as I just can't, I don't even know how to hang on by my fingertips anymore. So go to markinc.org and check out Anchored Hope. Again, I'm Sharon Betters. Thank you so much for joining us for the Help and Hope podcast. And we look forward to being with you again. Thank you for listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Visit markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to find additional free resources on a variety of topics. Online counseling services are also available through Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling by visiting helpandhopenow.org. That's helpandhopenow.org. Download the Help and Hope app on your mobile device. Hope is just one click away.